Our scripture reading today comes from Colossians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 11 through 15 today. Continuing in our series, Jesus is more than enough to raise the dead, life in him. This is part two of this sermon. And turning your Bibles to page 984 in terms of the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to follow along there, I encourage you to follow along in, in your own copy of God's Word as well. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, there are glorious truths to look at here today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it has the power to transform us and to make us more like Christ. And so we ask that you'd be pleased to do that today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. The Christian life is not an easy one. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that. We live in the tension of the already but not yet reality. As we recognized our new members and witnessed a baptism today, we had an opportunity to affirm the gospel in our lives and our outward commitment to Christ and to his church. We were reminded that we are already members of the kingdom of God. And yet, there is that aspect of the kingdom not yet. We continue to be part of a struggle towards completion as individuals and in our being made holy like Christ. And we look forward to that day as we fight this holy war as a church to our consummation when Christ will set all things right and make all things new. This tension that we live in is hard, it's difficult, we grow weary, we have the promises in our mind and we know it shouldn't be this way and that one day it's going to be better, but the reality is we're living in this in-between stage. We can become disheartened and discouraged. Some fall away from the faith and give up. Many in our ranks are depressed with the struggle against sin and the fallen world. What do we do with all of that? Where do we find strength and assurance in the challenges and difficulties of being a believer in a fallen world? Last week we looked at verses 6 through 10. Jesus is more than enough to raise the dead life in him, part 1. And there we unpack what it means for a believer to walk in him and to be filled in him. 
This morning we continue with the second part of this message and are looking at life in Christ, being baptized in him, being alive in him, and having victory in him. It's my prayer today that as we look to Christ and what he has provided for us in his death and resurrection, that our hope will be restored, that we will find assurance of his love for us, and that we will be empowered by the Spirit of Christ to live in holiness and obedience to him. Our first point in the outline is being baptized in him. This is part of what it means to have a life in Christ. And in that baptism, we die to sin and live in faith. Paul begins this discussion with the Old Testament sacrament of entry into the covenant community, circumcision. He tells us in Romans 4 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. While circumcision was a physical removal of the flesh, it is a sign of the spiritual circumcision of the heart that Paul talks about here. The cutting away of the body of flesh, our sin. It is this spiritual circumcision and subsequently spiritual baptism that Paul is addressing in this passage as part of what it means to be in Christ. The idea of the physical act of circumcision being a circumcision of the heart isn't new with Paul. It's not even new in the New Testament. This is what God's intent was all along from the very beginning of establishing that sacrament. Moses says in Deuteronomy 36, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. It seems scripturally that God, more often than not, chooses to work his plan of redemption through the family, from one generation to the next. If you had Christian parents, or have Christian parents, if you had Christian grandparents, or is there, if there is a line of Christians in your family, give thanks and praise God for that legacy, and that he has worked through that to save you as well. If you're a first-generation Christian, and God has blessed you with children, then give him thanks that he's beginning a new legacy of faith and a new generations of faith, starting with you. And pray that generation from generation will continue in the faith, and that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on will be his. While the Old Testament believers were commanded to have their male children physically circumcised as a sign and seal of entry into the community, as we just read, they also had the promise from God that he would circumcise their hearts and their children's hearts in salvation. They were completely dependent upon God's sovereign mercy for their salvation and that of their children, just as we are today. Paul says in verse 11 that the spiritual circumcision that is performed by God upon our hearts, our salvation or regeneration, is by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ happened on the cross 
when Jesus bore our sins in his body. Jesus was cut away from his people. He was despised and rejected of men. He became sin for us. Circumcision was an ordinance that pictured sin being removed or cut away from the believer. It is a physical sign and picture of being made righteous. This reality was fulfilled in the gospel through Jesus' suffering in his body on the cross. In verse 12, Paul continues and he likens the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision to baptism, the New Testament sign and seal of entry into the covenant community. Instead of signifying a cutting away of flesh with the shedding of blood, the New Testament sacrament now looks back to Christ once for all finished atoning work on the cross. And it is a sign of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon his people and the cleansing of sin using water as the object lesson. Baptism further signifies our being in Christ through being buried with him in his death and rising to new life in his resurrection. Paul clarifies this in his book to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The author of Hebrews tells us that in Christ, we now in the New Testament have a new and better covenant. And so we believe the sign of the new covenant, baptism, is also to be extended to the children of believers under this better covenant. And not only to the males, but to the males and female children. And since we have no New Testament command to withhold the sign of the covenant from our children, we continue the pattern that God established with his people under the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. So whether in baptism of a believer or their child, the water and act of baptizing has no ability to save in itself. And in both cases, we are wholly dependent upon God's mercy and grace to save us. While God's promise is extended to believers and their children, this does not guarantee salvation, nor does it excuse our personal responsibility for our sin before a holy and just God. Those that are baptized in infancy must receive the promise of salvation by exercising faith in the Lord Jesus when they're old enough to make their profession in him. Any illustration of biblical truth usually falls short and isn't perfect. But let's suppose that I was to give you a $100 gift card. Well, that gift card would represent the promise of $100 worth of something, merchandise or stuff. But as long as that gift card remains in your pocket, it isn't the thing itself. It simply represents the promise for you to be able to acquire. Until you actually utilize that gift card and purchase the $100 worth of things, the promise has not been fulfilled. And you could discard it. You could throw the gift card away. You could reject it and reject 
my gift to you, thereby forfeiting the promise. We and our baptized children must receive the promise of God for salvation and faith, trusting in Christ and his finished work on the cross in order to be saved. Baptism, like circumcision, is a physical outward sign and seal of a spiritual inward reality. It is not the thing itself. We are given the spiritual baptism of rebirth when Jesus saves us, which either confirms our covenant baptism placed on us in infancy or points us to believer's baptism in an act of obedience to the Lord's command to be identified with him and his church. Life in Christ means that we are spiritually baptized in him, having been buried with him in the death of sin, and also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, that we too might walk in newness of life. This leads very nicely into the next point, that life in Christ means we are alive in him. You know that we believe that by our very nature, we are heirs to Adam's original sin. As the father of the human race, Adam is our federal representative before a holy God. And he didn't do so well. And as a result, we are dead in him. This is why we needed a second human representative. A second Adam who lived a perfect life in order to give us his righteousness, and instead take upon himself our sin, and one who would conquer the grave by rising from the dead. The Christians being made alive in Christ includes our being together with him in his death and resurrection. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We are together with him in his death when we die to sin in the flesh. This is the cutting away in our spiritual circumcision. And we are united in him in his resurrection when we are regenerated to new life. And while we live as resurrected ones now, we also realize that the fullness of the resurrection isn't here yet but it will be when we are joined with him at his return. And in that day, sin and death will be obliterated, defeated completely, and we will attain immortality with bodies just as Christ has now. Being alive in Christ and united to him in his righteousness includes being forgiven of all our sins. And this forgiveness of sin provides us with freedom, even as we were talking about earlier in our growth class this morning. We have freedom in him, as we read in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In his commentary, O'Brien speculates that perhaps this is an illusion that it alludes to the writing that was attached to Jesus' cross describing his crime. You remember the story in the Gospels. At Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate 
had a writing, an inscription, that was nailed to Jesus' cross that expressed the charge that was laid against Jesus by the rulers and judges of that day. And the inscription read, The King of the Jews. This was the charge Jesus had against him by those earthly judges and authorities. The Greek word for inscription in Mark's gospel account of the crucifixion, epigraphe, has the same root as the word here in Colossians translated record of debt. Hierographon. Literally, the word hero means hand, and graphon, writing. The handwriting of our debt, of our sin. Pilate nailed the earthly accusation against Jesus in writing to the cross. But Paul tells us that God took the heavenly accusation against us in writing, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and nailed it to his son's cross that we might be reconciled to him. The charges of God, the judge and authority of the universe, were of far greater consequence and punishment than the charges of earthly men. Isaiah tells us that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In those few hours hanging on the cross, Jesus bore your record of debt and mine. He suffered the soul anguish of all the sins of all his people for all time. My favorite verse of the church's beloved hymn, It Is Well, puts it this way. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Next time we sing that hymn, remember that you are singing scriptural truth right from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Listen to the beautiful words of another song of our faith. Psalm 85, Lord, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So where did all that happen? Where did these things the psalmist declares take place? Where did the forgiveness of sin happen? Where did God cover all your sin? Where did God withdraw his wrath from his people? Where did God turn away from his hot anger? Where did God show his steadfast love to the world? And where did God grant salvation to his people? At the cross, brothers and sisters. The cross is where the forgiveness of sins happened. The cross is where steadfast love and faithfulness meet. The cross is where righteousness and peace kiss each other. When God turned his wrath and anger upon his only son, the perfect lamb of God, at the cross, God canceled our record of debt, and our sins were blotted out from the heavenly book of accounts. For those who are in Christ, the record of your sin no longer exists. It's been erased. 
It's disappeared. And the righteousness of Jesus has been added to your account instead. We are alive in Christ. Being together in him, having forgiveness in him, and having freedom in him. Our final point. Jesus is more than enough to raise the dead. Our life in him means that we have victory in him. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, which by the way is another glorious New Testament hymn of the excellencies of Christ and who he is, that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death upon a cross. And because of that, God exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We must be careful not to diminish the glory of Christ crucified by separating his humiliation on the cross from his glory, as though his glory were relegated to the resurrection and ascension. In the upper room, when Judas left to betray Jesus and to set in motion the events of the crucifixion, after Judas was gone, Jesus addressed his disciples, and he said this, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. The lifting up of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary was both the greatest travesty and one of the most glorious moments in all of human history. For the glory of the eternal triune God was on full display to the rulers and authorities of the universe, both seen and unseen. F.F. Bruce says, the very instrument of disgrace and death by which the hostile forces thought they had him in their grasp and had conquered him forever was turned by him into the instrument of their defeat and disablement. Did you notice the military-type language that Paul uses in verse 15 that almost speaks of a conquering hero? He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Jesus Christ. With these words, Paul's readers would have seen in their mind's eye a military victory parade of ancient Rome, with the defeated kings and rulers being dragged behind the victor's chariot down the main boulevard of a capital city, with thousands upon thousands of onlookers cheering for the victor. Satan and the hordes of hell, along with the wicked rulers of the world, thought they had defeated Jesus at the cross. But his final words, it is finished, were not a cry of defeat. They were a victory cry. The curtain torn in two. Dead, raised to life. Death, crushed to death through the power and glory of the cross. The tree of shame and suffering 
had become the victor's triumphal chariot that was speeding onward to the empty tomb and to the exalted throne of heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't be ashamed of the suffering Savior upon the cross. For there, the glory of God veiled in flesh was lifted up before all mankind, spanning the chasm between heaven and earth, providing the way of salvation for all of God's people for all time. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer. A couple of days ago, Andrew and I were having lunch just down the road talking about this beautiful passage and some of the wonderful truths that Paul is expressing here. And I asked him, I said, Andrew, what do you see in terms of application? And without any hesitation, the word assurance came out of his mouth. I couldn't agree more. The difficulties of life can overtake us. They can cause us to despair. The guilt of our own sin can make us doubt if we're really even saved to begin with. Do we really identify with Jesus as our baptism declared? Certainly, no, we aren't worthy of it. Are we really alive in him, our living head? I think if we're honest, we often feel more dead than alive, spiritually speaking. And do we live in victory or defeat most days? The beauty of baptism is that we are passive in its administration. It reminds us that Jesus is enough. He doesn't need us to participate in our salvation. He's done it all for us. We do not look to ourselves and the decision we made for Christ. We look to him and the decision that he made for us. You aren't enough, but Jesus is more than enough. We look to his resurrection, for it is in him that we are raised to new life. He gives us the power to walk in a manner worthy of him. Look to Christ's resurrection, not to your past failings and sin. And remember that victory is ours in the battle of sin and discouragement, for he has conquered the evil forces that would drag us down. He is King Jesus, the one who is mighty to save. If we're not living a victorious life of resurrection in Christ, it is because we are looking to ourselves and not to him. Because Jesus is more than enough to raise you from the dead and to enable you to live in him. This is where our assurance is, brothers and sisters. And it is in Christ that we must live and move and have our being. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. 
And the gospel is good news for your people. Lord, I pray that if there are any within the sound of my voice, either watching online or here in the room, whose sins have not been nailed to your cross, that, Father, they would see their need, that they would repent and turn from their sin and seek you alone for salvation. And, Father, I pray for the encouragement of your people. Father, would you remind us that in Christ we are resurrected to new life. And that even now, not simply in the by and by, but even now we can live in victory over sin, over discouragement, despair, because of Christ as we live in him. Would you enable us to do that through the power and the working of your Holy Spirit? We beg of you, in Christ's name, amen.